Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest this week is Pablo Jaramillo Quintero, Director General of Alianza Educativa, a nonprofit organization which runs 11 charter schools with nearly 12,000 kids in some of the toughest neighborhoods of Bogota, Colombia. Before Alianza, Pablo served as Deputy Education Minister for President Juan Manuel Santos, and before that, co-founded Enseña por Colombia. The students in Alianza's 11 schools face multiple social risks, including poverty, violence, micro-trafficking, drug trafficking in small amounts, and teen pregnancy. Pablo and I talk a lot today about the importance of school culture and how much has been eroded by the pandemic. The number of kids in crisis in his schools has doubled and is still rising. Young people are struggling to focus, to turn up on time, to solve problems with words and not fights. Drug abuse and teen pregnancies are on the rise, as are violence and apathy. Pablo offers a lot of tangible examples of how the pandemic has negatively impacted student motivation and behavior, but he also provides straightforward advice on rebuilding trust, supporting teachers and their well being, and managing the very tricky balance of, again, supporting students who are in need while also trying to reestablish high expectations and behavioral norms. During the pandemic, you know, everyone moved to the virtual classes and environments, also hybrid models. And we lost a lot of that school culture. So last year, when, when we reopened our schools, actually we reopened them in late 2020, but it wasn't until last year where we started seeing a lot of problems with school culture. So students were yelling again, very impatient, you know, after a very small problem, everyone exploded in a fight. So just getting back to this sense of responsibility, which is one of our three core values, is, is hard because it requires a lot of discipline. I hope you enjoy listening to Pablo as much as I enjoyed speaking to him. Pablo, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jenny. It's nice to be here. You told me recently that when you came back to school, many of your schools had gone back two to three years with respect to school culture. What was the culture pre-COVID? You know, one key aspect of our value proposition at Alianza is to create a school environments of, of high expectations, of respect, you know, of family engagement and, and of excellence, you know, and, and, and I think that's something that, that most schools try to achieve, similar school cultures. And for 20 years, we have spent a lot of time and energy on that. We at Alianza Educativa, we say we, we not only enroll students, but we also enroll families, right? And, and in the end, it, it, it's about that, about changing mindsets, changing and shaping beliefs where students get the opportunity of, you know, believing in themselves and creating a, a life project and believing that they can get access to higher education and then that, that they can find a, a purpose, you know, that is aligned with, with, with what they want in life. Our students come from, you know, underprivileged backgrounds. There are a lot of needs and, and violence and, and, and social risks, as we say in Colombia, right? So, so at Alianza, you know, this school culture is, is about getting them to, to an island of excellence to, so that they can see a different way of living. And that requires, you know, that everyone is aligned with those, you know, mindsets, beliefs, but also behaviors, right? For, so for 20 years, we, we have spend a lot of time and energy on that. And, and our, our old schools, you know, the ones that started 20 years ago, 
you know, at the outset, it was it was very challenging. You know, we, we saw families and students who didn't know how to solve problems, so they would come and fight to, to solve every every problem. Or, or the, there was a lot of, you know, crime, you know, in, in families and students and, and, you know, you would see students just having guns, you know, in the school and consuming drugs. And, and that's the reality of many communities and, and neighborhoods. And, you know, for 20 years, we have, have been working on that, just, again, changing those mindsets and behaviors. So at Alianza pre-COVID, in the old schools, you, you would see schools of excellence and, and you would see students who would attend, you know, on time to classes, who would behave in a, in a respectful way, right? Of course, everyone gets mad in their fights in school, of course, but <laughs> school, yeah. they would reflect and understand that, that, that that's wrong and they would turn in on time their, their homework and, and the families also, you know, some, some parents, you know, that are angry, you know, after a teacher puts a, a certain grade, you know, at a student who fails, they, they come and yell at a teacher and say, hey, why did you do this with my son? And then, okay, let's calm down. Let's talk. This is not the way of, of, of solving a problem. Again, it's also within communities. And of course, you know, during the pandemic, you know, everyone moved to the virtual classes and environments, also hybrid models. And we lost a lot of that school culture. You know? So last year, when, when we reopened our schools, actually, we reopened them in late 2020. But it wasn't until last year where we started seeing a lot of problems with school culture. So students were yelling again, very impatient, you know, after a very small problem, everyone exploded in a fight. For online classes, for instance, the students would turn off the camera and, and they would say like, I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm in a, on, a, on a virtual class and I don't care. I turn off the camera because the teacher was not there, you know. So just getting back to this sense of responsibility, which is one of our three core values, is, is hard because it requires a lot of discipline. And, and in some, it, it's about that, right? How, how do you regain or how do you recover those behaviors, mindsets, beliefs? So what are some of the things you're doing to try to rebuild that, to bring it back? You know, the first step for me, you know, and, and, and since last year with, with all, all school leaders, it, it's to set priorities, right? Because there's so many challenges and, you know, this is so overwhelming, you know, when we talk about, about the learning loss and this loss of school culture and, and mental health issues, you know, it's it's really overwhelming. So so we said, okay, uh, at the outset, the, the, the priority is mental health. Yeah, and, and we need to support the families, the students. And, and since last year, when we reopened, we, we focused on supporting us, our students with, with mental health. And, and that meant being very understanding, spending time on processing the, the pandemic, you know, le lessons and learnings, but also the, the losses, you know, that, that the students went through, right? And, and sort of like understanding that we had to talk about that, you know, and a lot of students came back with, with a lot of problems, a, a lot of mental health issues, right? And, and we, we were patient because we knew we had, we had to spend some time on that, you know, regaining the trust, it, you know, after so many months of telling everyone, you, you need to be scared of everyone else. Don't, don't get close to, to your friend. Just be careful because that person can, uh, can, can have the COVID and you can be sick, right? So just regaining that trust and regaining the, the, the safety of just interacting with everyone. So for us, there was a priority last year. And this year, you know, in Colombia, we, we finally got, you know, like a mandate of full 
you know, 100% in-person teaching, yeah, and, and, and learning. So last year we, we had a significant amount of students who were still having o- online classes. So, so at the outset of the year with all the principals and the school leaders, we said, okay, let's take this one step at a time, right? And, and that meant you cannot rebuild a school culture just in a week, right? That requires a very systematic approach. So we have some strategies that, that are for every school, but, but each principal has his or her own just priorities. So for instance, we have said, okay, we need to work a lot on punctuality and we need to work a lot on submitting homeworks on time because during the pandemic, we had been very understanding and very flexible. Right, because again, this this sense of excellence and responsibility requires that you learn how to behave in a way of there are deadlines, right? And one way of just putting into practice this responsibility is just delivering things on time. But during the pandemic, we were very understanding. There were students who lacked internet, who didn't have a family environment that would support them. So we we would not say, okay, Pablo, you're late. You had to submit a homework, so you, you fail. No, it's okay. I give you one more week. No worries. You know, it's what's important is that you're okay. But the problem with that is that student, you know, people get relaxed, as we say in Colombia, and, and say, okay, so nothing happens, you know, and I will not fail, right? And I won't do the homework and nobody cares. And that's, you know, a, a step backwards in, in, in this culture of excellence. So we have been, you know, very focused on that. Okay, let's. Let's work again on punctuality, on, on submitting things on time. I'll give you another example. You know, families that are traveling got used to say, okay, I take one week off and I take my, my kids to travel, right? During the school year. And we say that, that, that cannot happen anymore because, you know, during the pandemic, you could work on, online, but, but you cannot miss school. You know, you cannot as a parent say, okay, I take one week off during school time. And, and nothing happens. So that requires, again, explaining, hey, the, your students cannot miss classes, et cetera. So, so, so we're working a lot on just regaining this school culture one step at a time, okay? Punctuality, excellence, just more discipline and being more demanding, but also creating a, a, a safety environment for the students to say, okay, there are a lot of fights, so we need to calm down, right? And take it easy and, and protect the students, right? And, and that requires a lot of patience. You know, the, our teachers are overwhelmed. Our students are behaving in a very violent way right now. They're, they're very aggressive, right? So, of course, the first reaction is, I, I want to fire this student. You know, that we, we need to, and it's okay, take it easy. We actually, they, they need support. But, but that's what I would say in terms of, of, of the culture, right? And finally, I would, I would say, you know, motivation and, and high expectations, you know, after, after this two years of the pandemic, we, we also saw a lot of decline in student motivation, right? And, and, and students have lost, yeah, motivation in terms of, okay, is this useful? Maybe uh, I, I won't get to college, you know, because I'm looking around and, and everyone is so negative, right? And, and, and pessimistic that why should I bother, you know, and work hard? And it's a very pessimistic environment, right? With the economy, politics, everything. That has to do a lot with school culture, with okay, regaining that motivation and that belief that education and learning is important for your life. You know, higher education is a key component of 
your life project, whatever you, you, you will become, right? The entrepreneur or professional, but so, so that requires, again, a lot of setting that priority and working on that. Are you finding new ways in this unusual moment post-pandemic to try to reignite that motivation? Absolutely. And, and you know, my, my evidence for that is, is just talking with students, right? And, 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 and seeing how they behave, right? So the, this example of, of turning the camera off is, is exactly that, you know? So when they were in, in online classes, they didn't care, you know? And, and, and even, you know, in Colombia, we say stick and carrot, right? You, you try to give them carrots and motivate them in a good way. But when you say, okay, I also have a stick. And if you fail, uh, you, you will fail a grade or you, you start to have those incentives. They didn't give a damn. They said, okay, I don't care. I will fail, whatever, you know. And he was like, oh my gosh, this is hard. So when they came back, we saw that in the, in, in the classes, right? So they wouldn't speak. They, they wouldn't participate. And it was not only because they were shy, it was because they didn't understand why it was useful. But then over time, every week, every month, you, you start seeing an, an improvement on that regard. And, and that happens when you have exciting classes, when the teachers talk to the students about their lives and, and their concerns, right? And, and once they get sort of like in, involved in this energy, they start again to say, okay, let's talk about your life project. Let's talk about higher ed. You know, what about learning, right? But, but it requires a full cycle of just engaging them again in finding a purpose, you know, in, in, in learning, right? And, and, and that's what, for me, you know, education is about, right? And you all do something quite unique on this front. You have this navegar seguro, yes. which means to navigate securely, safely. Yeah, correct. Explain what that means and how maybe that intersects with trying to motivate kids right now. Well, Navegar Seguro is a, is a social and emotional learning program that, that Alianza created 15 years ago, and, and we renewed it three years ago, you know, we, with the idea of, of, of getting more tools to, to not only to learn social and emotional skills, but also create opportunities to put them into practice. And that, that was a key innovation of us at Alianza, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we had this homeroom SEL curriculum and we would work on these skills, but but we realized this needs to be alive, right? We need to create opportunities not only for students, but also for adults. I mean for, for the teachers, school leaders, for everyone to just learn and put these SEL skills into practice, you know, and, and we are not only working on the on homeroom, but but we also work on that in, in other areas and subjects. So we said okay. The good thing about Navegar Seguro, again, is that it gives you tools to translate these values and these skills into practice. So, okay, I want to self-regulate myself. What, what can I do, right? How can I regulate my emotions? And, and then we get tapes and short exercises to put them into practice. And everyone is talking about that. So with motivation, it's the same. We, we said, okay, what are your goals in life, right? And, and what is it that you want to achieve? And how can how do you create a life project? But okay, if, if you want if you want to implement it and to achieve your goals, you need to work hard. So so what is what is preventing you from working hard? And what are the distractions? And everything is connected because then you start saying, okay, I need to okay regain attention and focus and spend some time doing my homework. And if I want to get to college, I need to you know first learn these things and, and everyone it's connected, you know, but Navegar Seguro is a key component of that. You know, it gives us the tools to translate that into practice. I would say. 
I'm curious if your teachers are receptive to this. Oftentimes, especially in higher levels, right, in high school, teachers feel that their job is to really impart content and to be subject matter experts. And they're the ones who are most resistant to this need for social emotional learning in classrooms. I'm curious if you think the pandemic has helped accelerate an acceptance that SEL, even at the highest levels of learning in high school, is important. Actually, I think there are two things that the teachers, you know, said, okay, this, this, is, not my, this is not my responsibility. You know, one is language. And, and this is something we work a lot because, you know, the math teachers, science teachers, they said, okay, language, you know, the Spanish teachers are responsible for that. And, and we, we spend a lot of time and, and we're actually renewing our entire program on that saying, everyone is responsible for the language development of students because we, we believe that, that that is absolutely connected with thinking. And that requires from us to not only support, but, but to engage the, the teachers in understanding why language development is important, you know, throughout the entire school. And same happens with, with SEL, right? Because social and emotional learning is not another subject. It's about understanding that SEL happens every, in every single moment, right? And the responsibility is not only to teach your students, but to develop it yourself, right? Or, you know, I as a teacher, as a school leader, need to, to learn and to develop and to model those SEL skills. And, and what we learned is that, you know, if we want our teachers to be effective on SEL teaching, we need to train them and we need to support them, right? If you want to teach a student how to be empathetic, well, you need to understand yourself what that means and, and, and how is it that you put empathy into practice. But you cannot wait three or five years until your teachers are proficient on that to go then and, and teach your students. So our approach is we are all learning and putting it into practice at the same time. So last year during the pandemic, we started having workshops with the teachers on their own SEO development. So we said, okay, well, let, let's work on ourselves, you know? So let's discuss our SEL skills and, okay, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What is it that you struggle the most with, right? What, what are the skills? And some people would say, oh, self-regulation. You know, this is really hard for me. With other people is pro-social behavior, you know, and empathy and et cetera. So the approach was, okay, let's work on ourselves. And we got the teachers to reflect on their own SEL development, right? So they had not only workshops, but also like a plan to improve on some of those skills. And then slowly that start translating into the classes because the teachers say, okay, this is, for, this is good for me. I, I actually need to manage my time better. And I need to understand how can I just uh, have more discipline to focus on my projects. But I also need to have, I, I don't know, self-regulation, emotional self-regulation, whatever it is. And that's the way we engage the teachers in understanding that that we all need to work on that with the students. And they understand it's not only their responsibility, it's also good for them, for themselves, right? For their own well-being. Before the pandemic, you weren't doing sort of teacher SEL work. Is that right? Not much or not enough. I mean, we, we, we would have some workshops, right? Some training, but it was more focused on, okay, I'll, I'll train you to, to, to implement this SEL curriculum, right? And, and our approach now is we'll work with, with you on, on your own SEL development. And we got a lot of surveys and, and it was interesting, you know, like 
how do, how do people feel about their SEO skills? And, and you don't get a grade. It's more like you self-assess how you think, you know, you, you manage or, or, you, or you're proficient in that skill, you know, what you struggle with or not. So, so it's, it's great because it's something that people like a lot. Okay, what is, what is it that I'm struggling with? Or what is it that I'm really good at? You know, I'm, I'm very good at being empathetic and, and understanding at different perspectives, right? And that is key for the teachers when they go and work with their students for that. You have about 11,700 students. You told me you have about 1,000 struggling mentally, 200 maybe in crisis. How much higher is that than before the pandemic? I would say it has doubled and it's still increasing, you know, and, and it's, it's one of our biggest concerns right now. We're seeing a lot of students with, with, with mental health issues from different levels, right? And we, we see a lot of students facing social risks and social risks have skyrocketed in the last weeks, I would say, you know? So in the first weeks of this school reopening, you know, students came back and they were very happy about meeting again their, their friends and, and they realized how much they missed school, which is amazing for us. They finally said, I actually love my school. I don't, I don't hate it. But now, you know, so, some weeks into the school year, again, the conflict has increased a lot. We're starting to see a lot of cases of drug abuse, you know, among students. And again, this drug micro-traffic that happens around the school. So a lot of, of gangs are trying to get the students involved in drug trafficking or in drug abuse, right? Sexual uh, behavior, you know, of students. So we see a lot of cases or, or, or students who, who are not taking precautions. And that, again, for us is, you know, teenage pregnancy is, a, is one of the biggest risks that, that our students face, right? Not only girls, but also boys. We are seeing a lot of, we call, we call it, conducts that are associated with, with suicide or suicidal thoughts, you know, like, like cutting and, and those kind of behaviors. Again, it's happening a lot, you know, and, and, and behind that are students who are struggling, you know, with mental health issues, who are depressed, who are suffering, right, who are, who are feeling alone by themselves. So it's really overwhelming. And actually, yesterday, we, with all our principals and, and school leaders, we were talking about that. And the psychologists at schools, you know, are overwhelmed, you know. So, so the reality is that this has skyrocketed and, and it's one of the biggest challenges that we have right now. What are we doing for that? Okay, well, on the one hand, a lot of prevention and promotion. That's what, how we call it in Colombia. So a lot of, okay, let, let's go back to our drug prevention courses and workshops and, and teenage pregnancy prevention courses and working a lot with families and students, but also attention of cases that are difficult. You know, students that are already into this, these risks who really require specialized attention, not only from the psychologist, but from the health system. So in some cases, we had to transfer those students to specialists from the health system, you know, like a psychiatrist or, or someone else. But, but the problem is big, you know, and, and, and it's a big challenge that we're facing right now. Would this be solved with more money to hire more psychologists, or is that not enough? Is the problem just kind of at this point too big? I mean, I don't know if it would solve the problem entirely, but it would help a lot, you know, and, and actually we have a lot of barriers, you know, on that, you know, we have two psychologists per school and our schools have in average 1,200 students. So, so when you have one psychologist for five or 600 students and out of them, you have 4,100, you know, 
very complex cases, well, the attention is is not as as good as we, as we would like. Actually, last year we had to hire additional psychologists, like in a contention plan, but, but that's not sustainable because our funding is very very limited. So absolutely, our our students need more more support and more time with with psychologists. But sometimes the psychologist the psychologist need, needs to work with not only the student but the entire family, right? And that takes a lot of time. You, you cannot support twenty students a day, probably four or five. So it's a it's a big big problem. But but again, we're working a lot on that front, and we're creating a new mental health program, and we're using every single tool that we have to support our students or on their well being, and to make sure that hopefully improving that over the next months. What else is sort of top of mind, top concern? There are many, but, you know, regarding uh, student-wise, you know, the, the learning loss, absolutely, you know, during these two years and in, in the education sector, we have talked a lot about that, you know, and, and, and it's really shocking, you know, students that had to learn to write and read, you know, and they didn't. So now they're in second or third grade and, and you need to create remedial pro- programs for them. And it's really complex in, in public education because you, you don't have as, as many resources and tools as in, in the private schools, right? So just having a tutor or a, or a small group session, it's it's really difficult. You, you don't have headcount, you don't have people or time to just send students to just remedial pro- programs and the gap grows every day. So the learning loss is, is big at every grade and we had to make very difficult decisions. So for instance, you know, we had 40 weeks of the school calendar, right? And, and, and when you plan your curriculum, we plan for 38 weeks. And then when we say, okay, we need to go back to learnings, right? And, and that, that were not met. That requires you to say, okay, I need to cut my curriculum because I need to spend many weeks on just recovering skills and recovering content and, and whatever is important, you know, to just level the playing field and try to help the students who need remedial pro- programs, et cetera. So it's really complex because that requires a lot of thinking in, in terms of the curriculum, but also in terms of operations. How do you get that done, right? And in the end, that's also positive because I think our curriculums are full of contents that are, are, are useless, right? So it's also helping us you know, to be sure, okay, if we teach something, it needs to be very important and, and crucial, but, it, but it's complex. That, that's one thing that gives me up at night. The other one is the teacher well-being, you know, and teacher mental health. And, and, and we're also seeing a lot of problems with our teachers. I think in the U.S., when I read the news, you know, a lot of teachers are, are quitting, are resigning. They're overwhelmed, you know, and it's hard because, you know, last year we had to move from virtual to hybrid to in-person teaching. And that requires every, every month just change again the way you teach and, and the way you plan and the way you evaluate and assess learning, right? And now that we're full back in, in person, it's been hard for the teachers because they realize, my gosh, this, this is hard. I need to spend a lot of time dealing with small problems in the school that didn't happen when I was at home. I need to spend more time just talking with parents and, and they're tired, they're overwhelmed, you know? And they're, they're also overwhelmed with the, with the students' behaviors, you know, and, and with the discipline, right? So it's hard, you know, so we're also trying to support our teachers in an alianza. We, we are demanding, you know, and, and we work hard. But at the same time, our teachers and staff, well, they're overwhelmed. You know, how, how do you find a good balance between that? You know, it's okay. Everyone needs to rest, but 
but we have a sense of urgency with our students and there's so many things we want to do. And, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a complex dilemma that we have every, every day and every week. If you had to guess what percentage of the curriculum you're going to try to cut out to try to pare it down a little bit, could you give me a back of the envelope guesstimate? 30%, probably. I'm curious what you think makes a good leader. That's a question for an entire podcast, but my vision about leadership is that you're, you're not the messiah. You know, a leader is not someone who, who solves the problem for, for everyone who has the, the solutions. I think it's part of the job of a leader is to support a group or a community to face the biggest challenges that they have and move forward. And the, the problem with that is that, again, you, you cannot do it by yourself. Otherwise, it would be very easy. You know, if, if the leaders had the solutions, well, they can do it and, and, and it's their problem. But, but in times of crisis, it, it's about, you know, how, how can you create a vision and create a path forward, you know, so that people understand where you're heading to, you know, a sense of security and safety, right? To, okay, we have uncertainty, we're scared, what will happen? And then you need a, a, a leader who is strong in terms of, okay, you know, I, I at least have a vision, you know, and but, but I need to work on that vision with everyone. You know, I need to create that, that vision with everyone. So, so again, it's it's just a chicken or, or, or egg problem because you know that you, you need to help the, the group, you know, move forward, but but you need to engage them in, in, on, on that process. You know, I don't know if that if that's clear. And that's for me what I've tried to do in the last two years. You know, it's it so much uncertainty, we didn't know how to do during the pandemic, right? Uh, in the end, it was about okay. Let's let's work the challenges out, you know, one at a time, right? Let's create this group of of principles that would meet every day or every other day or every week to just solve problems. But let's be very strong in terms of communicating where we're headed, uh, what our priorities are, you know, to listen to the people and and everyone feel safe, you know, with that kind of leadership because, okay, at least we have a plan, but we need to be engaged and we need to be part of it. Do you think you learned things about yourself as a leader and changed your own leadership style or approach as a result of the pandemic? I think I have. I mean, I still need to to, to take some time and reflect on that. But yeah, I think I got more, more humility, you know, in the end, we're all just goal-driven and, and we want to, and I want to, you know, achieve so many goals and suddenly you say I cannot control everything you know I need to calm down there are other priorities right not only at work but also in life other things that matter more than just achieving your goals right so for me that was a key lesson the other one is is to to share that leadership right because Alianza Educativa for you know, with, with pros and cons, have been a very, you know, command and control organization as, as, as many school networks, right? In, you know, there are a lot of charter school networks who are, it's like a pyramid, right? And, 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 and command and control, and, and you control the curriculum, and, and, and you just manage from a, from a central office and use standardized processes. And, and that's part of the success of, of many schools, right? It's good because that, that creates... A certain level of quality and accountability, but on the other hand, you, you need to share that responsibility and you need to just delegate that responsibility. And, and I think at Alianza, we moved from a very vertical leadership to a more horizontal one that we have right now. That, that, that I mean, we still have a centralized curriculum. We still make a lot of decisions, 
at the central office, but we learn how to engage our school leaders and, and our principals in a more active way without slowing that down. You know, on the other hand, it's okay. If you need to just make a decision with 11 principals, it's it's much easier that Pablo makes that decision quickly, right? But but I think if, if I engage some of them and we create a task force and they came with a proposal, yeah, maybe we, it took us one more week, then it's much more effective because they're empowered, right? So for me, that's been a key lesson. And, and finally, the, the other one is about trust, about creating trust. And one of the biggest dilemmas that we had early in the pandemic was about school reopening. I mean, people forget about that. That was before we had vaccines. So we didn't know what would happen. And at some point, you know, after we went through the first peak of the pandemic, that was September 2020, I think, the, the ministry said, okay, schools can now reopen if they want, right? And everyone was so scared. You know, I had to make a difficult decision. Are we going to open their schools or not? You know, are we going to let every school decide if, if the school wants to open? Are we going to decide, uh, you know, as, as an entire network? A, a lot of questions. And, and we took a, a different approach. And, and, and actually, in many public schools, that was the approach. Okay, you go to your school board of directors, and that board will decide if you open or not. And, and very quickly, I would say 99% of the schools said, we don't want to open. It's too risky. And it was a big failure because, you know, school, school closure was a big failure for, I mean, I think for the entire system. And at Alianza, you know, you know in our history, we had been very, again, command and control. So we, we just made a decision and the schools would follow that decision. So everyone was waiting on what Paulo would decide, you know, are we going to open or not? And I said, okay, that's the wrong approach. Instead of deciding now if we open or not, let's spend the next month thinking about possibilities for school reopening. What would it take us to reopen our schools safely? And how could we as a central office support the schools? And we engage everyone, teachers, principals, families, right? And then they started thinking about that with a positive way. It was not like we have to open. This is a decision that was made in the at headquarters, but what if we open, what, what could we do, right? And then at the end of that process, we said, how many people would like to volunteer for participating in a school reopening pilot? And for my sur surprise, 40% of our staff said, I want to participate voluntarily, right? That was fantastic because then we said, okay, we have a plan. We started with, I would say, 20% of our students and families who wanted to attend in person. And 40% of our staff said, I want to go voluntarily. People who said, I don't want because I'm scared, we, we respected that. And we said, it's fine because I understand that this is difficult for you. And, and for me, that was a, a turning point at Alianza because we reopened our schools, which was our goal. We did it with people who decided to participate voluntarily. And I don't know, some weeks after that, everyone understood that it was possible. My gosh, the schools are working. Students are happy. We're safe. Actually, people felt safer in the schools that are outside of them, right? And then in 2021, all the schools open, and we very quickly move forward with the in-person learning. And, and again, if you just reflecting back on, on leadership, you know, it, it was a key decision because I could have said, okay, I just leave it up to you, and everyone decides. Well, everyone would have said, we, we will not open. If I would have said, okay, now we decided this at the board level and it's mandatory to reopen the schools, 
probably people would have gone there with a lot of fear. But just finding that space to engage and ensure that leadership made everyone felt safe, felt recognized, and created a wave of trust that was key, you know, last year in 2021 to say, well, we, we did it. And, and that was the big failure for a lot of public systems, right? They didn't find a way to negotiate with the teacher unions or with the teachers. And it was a political fight. The government saying it's mandatory to go back. The union say we refuse to go back. And what happened? 12 months later, the schools were closed. If I made you education minister right now, what would be the two or three things you would do very briefly? Right away. First, the ministry needs to lead the system, you know, and, and, and we need to bridge, you know, different perspectives. You know, we are all divided you know, between technocrats, teachers, pedagogues. So we need to understand that we work together and that requires a strong leadership. We need to support schools, local departments of education in, in creating and operating or implementing these learning loss recovery plans. And third, mental health. We, we really we need to spend a lot of resources on supporting our students and, and teachers to, to just recover from these two years that, that have been very hard for everyone. What is your favorite book about learning? There's one that I like a lot, which is Visible Learning. It's John Hattie, I think, the author. What is one of your favorite books not about learning? You know, 100 Years of, of Solitude, you know, we, we Colombians are very proud of Garcia Marquez. So I always try to read back now with, with my son. He's almost four years old. Um, I, I read to him and I, I like that book a lot. Are you reading 100 Years of Solitude to your four-year-old? I read some pages to him, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> okay. He gets bored and he gets bored, but, you know, I like it. So someday he will like it. You're really pushing that zone of proximal development. Finally, what are you binge watching? Again, now I watch a lot of movies with my son. So Disney movies, it's it's my plan every week. Encanto? I sing and I listen to Encanto song every single day for 20 times. You know, my son knows all the Encanto songs. He loves to sing them. Pablo, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Jenny, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Pablo and I covered a lot of issues that are pretty common topics in education today. Mental health, learning loss, teacher well-being. But Pablo really dug into each, explaining what's been lost, offering ideas as to how to regain them, and delivering some sobering data to show the deep impact of the pandemic, a doubling of students in crisis, one school counselor for every 500 students, a 30% cut in the curriculum. When he speaks about what keeps him up at night, these mental health challenges, teacher well-being, learning loss, you can hear the urgency of it all. I was particularly struck by his comments around social and emotional learning. I knew before we spoke that Alianza had built out its program from a standalone subject to teaching it through every subject. But the pandemic shifted Pablo's thinking even more radically to focusing a lot of time and resources on building up teachers' own social and emotional capabilities. It sounds so obvious when you say it, teachers need to look after themselves before they can look after others. But it's not what's typically done. As Pablo said, we can't wait five years to be better at time management or emotional self-regulation. We have to get to work on it and work on it every single day. Finally, I loved Pablo's reflections on his own leadership and how it's changed. More humility, seating more control to get more engagement, the importance of building trust by not pushing staff or families to come back to school in 2020, but by giving them the option and then welcoming them back as they felt safer. Sometimes we end up so focused on achieving our goals that we don't want to sacrifice efficiency to gain buy-in. But that buy-in often pays off in the long run, often by making those goals more enduring. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. 
If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.